And then I just start to hear these yells of, where is she? Where is she? And I just thought to myself, they got inside. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, in Rochester, New York on WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today, and welcome to the Bradcast. In mid-December of just last year, which of course is a thousand years ago, while we were all in a pitched battle trying to save American democracy from a president hell-bent on overthrowing it, an important study came out that should be of note today, as reported at the time by CBS Money Watch. Tax cuts for the wealthy have long drawn support from so-called conservative lawmakers and economists who argue that such measures will, quote, trickle down and eventually boost jobs and incomes for everyone else. But a study from the London School of Economics says 50 years of such tax cuts have only helped one group, the rich. The new paper at the time that came out last December uh, by David Hope of the London School of Economics and Julian Limburg of King's College London examines 18 developed countries from Australia to the United States over a 50-year period from 1965 to 2015. The study compared countries that passed tax cuts in a specific year, such as the U.S. in 1982, when President Ronald Reagan slashed taxes on the wealthy, Uh, with those countries that didn't, and then they examined their economic outcomes. Per capita gross domestic product and unemployment rates were nearly identical in those countries after five years in the countries that slashed taxes on the rich and in those that did not, according to the study. No change. 
It didn't help GDP. It didn't create jobs, at least not more than it did in other countries where they did not slash taxes. But the analysis discovered one major change. The incomes of the rich in those countries grew much faster where tax rates were lowered. Instead of trickling down to the middle class, tax cuts for the rich may not accomplish much more than help the rich to keep more of their riches and exacerbate income inequality, according to this research. Well, that sounds exactly right. Don't it, Desi Doyen? Oh, it most certainly does. It reminds me of that old saying, don't trickle down on me and tell me it's raining. Oh, you're so from Texas, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, based on our research, uh, the uh, Julian Lindbergh, the co-author of the study and a lecturer in public policy at King's College, uh, said, uh, based on our research, we would argue that the economic rationale for keeping taxes on the rich low is weak. In fact, we look back into history... Uh, if we look back, the period with the highest taxes, the highest taxes on the rich, the post-war period, was also a period with high economic growth and low unemployment. Because the analysis ends in 2015, the research does not include President Donald Trump's massive $2.3 trillion tax overhaul, which he signed into law in late 2017 which slashed taxes for the rich and corporations while providing a moderate, temporary tax cut for the middle class. But Lindbergh, who co-authored the study, said that he would not expect the results of that tax cut to be much different. Already, Trump's tax cuts have lifted the fortunes, this was as of December, lifted the fortunes of the ultra-rich, according to uh, 2019 research from true prominent economists, For the first time in a century, the 400 richest American families paid lower taxes in 2018 than people in the middle class, according to The Economists. Since the pandemic began, the combined wealth of America's 651 billionaires jumped by more than $1 trillion, reaching $4 trillion in early December, according to Americans for Tax Fairness. Meanwhile, at the same time, almost 8 million Americans fell into poverty since the start of the pandemic through last November, according to new data that was released by the University of Chicago and the University of Notre Dame. Raising taxes on the rich and corporations could provide trillions of dollars in resources for helping the economic recovery. According to Gabe Zuckman of the University of California at Berkeley, he's one of the authors of the 2019 study, uh, Raising Taxes on the Rich. He says this is not only a viable option, but also a fair option because some of the wealthiest taxpayers have benefited from the pandemic. They have benefited. For instance, large corporations like Amazon and their shareholders these taxpayers could reasonably be asked to pay more to make up for pandemic losses elsewhere. So with that in mind, we pick up where we left off on yesterday's show in discussing the Republican counterproposal to Joe Biden's COVID relief and stimulus package 
uh, as he was meeting at the White House with those 10 Republicans uh, while we were on air yesterday. Biden has, as you know, proposed a $1.9 trillion package. The 10 Republicans have proposed a counterproposal, less than one third of that size, coming in around $600 billion, arguing it seems that, well, $1.9 trillion is just a lot of money to spend. $1.9 trillion, even though those were the very same folks who argued that spending $2.3 trillion which is more than $1.9 trillion, by the way, $2.3 trillion spent on a tax cut for wealthy people. All of those Republicans, all of them, argued that that was very, very important to do, no matter how large a hole that it ended up putting into the national debt and our deficit, and as we now know, how few jobs it actually provides and how it actually serves largely to only grow economic inequality between the rich and the not rich. So, with Republicans once again so concerned about spending just too much money, too much money that is not going to rich people, well, what are the Republicans hoping to remove from Biden's plan to get their own plan down to about $600 billion? under the premise that it just costs too much money if we do what Joe wants, well, to whittle down Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief and stimulus package. The proposal from the Republicans eliminates, among other things, $350 billion in aid to state and local governments, which have been devastated because of layoffs caused by the pandemic, which then slashes into their tax revenue base for both states and cities alike. As they go into uh, deficits, unlike the federal government, those states and cities got to slash costs, which means cutting services, laying off state and local employees like cops and doctors and nurses and firefighters and emergency medical technicians and teachers and garbage collectors, etc. So the Republicans are trying to defund the police. There you go. All of that, of course, uh, decreases revenue. For those states and cities, even further for those jurisdictions, uh, making things even worse, leading to more layoffs, etc. The GOP proposal cuts that aid entirely from Biden's proposal. Zero money to state and local governments. State and local aid has been a key priority for Democratic members of Congress and has lately attracted support from budget-strapped red state governors as well, including folks like Jim Justice, Republican of West Virginia, Asa Hutchinson, Republican of Arkansas. When Senate Majority, then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, was in charge, he refused to include any funding for states that were hit by plummeting tax revenues due to the pandemic. To expand public health for the longer term or to do anything towards building an infrastructure that would prepare the country for future public health crises, uh, all of that funding that Biden has in his plan was also left on the cutting room for floor by the Republicans. The Biden plan, for example, proposes the creation of a 100,000 person strong public health job corps to supplement the country's pandemic fighting capacity in the short term, for example, to help distribute uh, a vaccine and to create a force for the public health in the longer term. The GOP proposal 
makes no mention of that. That is cut out entirely. Biden's proposal also includes $1,400 stimulus checks for folks making up to $75,000. Those are whittled down in the GOP package to just $1,000, and they taper off uh, for folks who are making $40,000 and then disappear entirely for those making $50,000 or more. Um, the Biden plan gives $130 billion to K-12 through schooling around the country, helping school districts stay above the water while giving them money for things like PPE and for social distancing measures to allow for safe in-person education. Yes, money to get schools back open. The very thing that Republicans have claimed for months that they want to see. The GOP proposal defunds that to a mere $20 billion as compared to the $130 billion that Joe Biden is offering. But let's take that money away from schools, shall we? Other Biden proposals, like raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, those are not mentioned at all in the GOP proposal. And of course, the need to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour makes sense in the wake of giving uh, rich people and corporations $2.3 trillion in tax breaks without Republicans even breaking a sweat. So as when Barack Obama fell for a far less large stimulus package than pretty much every economist said was needed after the last Republican president oversaw yet another devastated economy back in the 2008 Great Recession, uh, Obama, just in hopes of getting some Republican uh, votes, had decreased the package that he wanted to see. The question is now, will Joe Biden and the Democrats fall for the GOP's suddenly newfound all over again interest in fiscal austerity under the pretend guise of conservative economic principles? Well, Good news. According to reporting since that meeting on Monday night between Joe Biden and those 10 Democrats, um, and according to action in Congress on Tuesday, it looks like the answer is nope. Biden and the Democrats ain't going to fall for it again. Not this time. The uh, White House said after that meeting uh, uh, with Republican lawmakers on Monday night, that uh, Joe Biden, quote, will not settle for a package that fall, fails to meet the moment. The president met with those 10 Republican senators led by Susan Collins for nearly two hours on Monday, after which White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki issued a statement to reiterate Biden's emphasis on bold and urgent action while pointing at a failure by Republican senators' proposal to adequately address the moment. Quote, while there were areas of agreement, the president also reiterated his view that Congress must respond boldly and urgently and noted many areas which the Republican senator's proposal does not address. He reiterated that while he is hopeful that the rescue plan can pass with bipartisan support, nonetheless, a reconciliation package is a path to achieve that end. A reconciliation package, of course, refers to a budget reconciliation uh, a process which the Senate is able to propose and to pass with a simple majority vote, as opposed to needing to overcome a 60-vote filibuster. 
Saki added that while Biden has hopes for reaching points of consensus, the president, quote, will not slow down work on this urgent crisis response and will not settle for a package that fails to meet the moment. That sounds like very good news to me today, Des. It does. And I, I hope that that it means that Biden is to that point in his life where he's saying to himself, I'm too old for this stuff. I know. I know what you want to say here that yes. you can't say on the radio to describe the things that Joe Biden may be out of at this point. Uh, earlier in the day, uh, House Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that they were preparing to file budget bills designed to swiftly move Biden's relief package through the Senate with a simple majority vote. Instead of the 60 needed to uh, overcome a filibuster under Pelosi and Schumer's plan to push ahead with or without Republican support is the reality that they cannot afford to lose a single Democratic vote in the Senate if they're going to get this passed with 50 Democratic votes plus uh, the tie-breaking vote from Vice President Kamala Harris. But Senator Joe Manchin has been pressing the White House to reduce the size of the $1.9 trillion stimulus proposal. Uh, that, according to two sources uh, who spoke to Washington Post. And nonetheless, at the same time, West Virginia's Republican governor, Jim Justice, is calling for Biden to go big with his rescue plan. So we will see what happens. We'll see if that helps uh, to win Manchin over at this point. In any case, the good news, at least for now, for the moment, is that Biden does not seem to be falling for the plea from Republicans to lowball the much-needed stimulus plan, as the Republicans were able to do in 2008, leading to a much longer recovery at the time from the Great Recession, longer recovery than was necessary, at least for everyone but the rich folks back then, who apparently Republicans now exclusively serve. Those are the only folks the Republicans seem to care about, and even that seems to me to be short-sighted. Because if not rich people have money, they will buy things from the rich people. Uh, on Tuesday, Chuck Schumer announced uh, his intentions on Twitter. He declared, quote, the needs in our country are great. It's time to meet the challenges of the moment with boldness, courage and urgency. That's why Speaker Pelosi and I filed a joint budget resolution totaling one point nine trillion dollars. So Congress can pass a covid bill a relief bill quickly and decisively. So if this is indicative of the new Democratic majority and the new administration, I am all in favor so far. I'm sure they will find ways to disappoint us all very soon. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, but for now, at least on this big, uh, very uh, big first hurdle, I'd say so far so good. Now, the other major news you need to know about today regards the previous administration and yes the fight the democrats are continuing to bring there for accountability donald trump's second impeachment trial starts next week the house impeachment managers and the attorneys that donald trump was able to scrape together at the last minute after his initial legal team all left him on mass at once over the weekend uh, those two different groups of lawyers filed their pretrial briefs in the U.S. Senate today. That story and much more, including Desi Doyen's latest Green News report, is all still ahead today on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. 
Yeah, and that's exactly what Donald Trump and his attorneys are trying to do today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Before I get to those uh, details, I want to start here. Uh, In a video on her Instagram channel on Monday night, New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Democrat, told the, uh, the harrowing story of her traumatic experience during the January 6th siege at the U.S. Capitol, including multiple times when she feared for her life as um, the MAGA mob ransacked the place. In an hour-long live stream, she also revealed that she is a survivor of sexual assault. Uh, And she likened Republicans who have urged the country to simply move on after the Capitol riot to abusers. She says that her experience informed her decision to speak up and to tell her story about what happened to her that day at the U.S. Capitol. Now, we don't have time to air it all, obviously, hour long. Um, But I want to play some key extended excerpts today because I think that it informs or at least helps informed what happened uh, that day in the U.S. Senate and what happened today as the second impeachment trial is set to begin next week over Trump's incitement of this unprecedented attack. So AOC... um, Uh, begins here describing her experience being forced to take shelter from the MAGA mob in her congressional office bathroom and then realizing, well, that might have been a mistake. I immediately realized that I shouldn't have gone into the bathroom. I should have jumped in the closet. And so I, I opened the door when all of a sudden I hear that whoever was trying to get inside got into my office. Um, and then I realized that it's too late, that it's too late for me to get into the closet. And so I, I go back in and I, I hide back in, um, in the bathroom behind the door. And then I just start to hear these yells of, where is she? Where is she? And I just thought to myself, they got inside. And so I hide behind my door and the door hinges right here. And I just hear, where is she? Where is she? And um, this was the moment where I thought everything was over. Um, and the weird thing about moments like these is that you lose all sense of time. It felt like my brain was able to have so many thoughts in that moment, um, between these screams and these yells of where is she? Where is she? And so I go down and I just... I mean, I thought I was going to die. Um, And I had a lot of thoughts. You have a lot of thoughts, (laughs) I think, when you're in a situation like that. Um, 
And like also one of those thoughts that I had was, you know, I just happened to, you know, be a spiritual person and be raised in that context. And I really just felt like, you know, if this is the plan for me, um, then people will be able to take it from here. Um, I had a lot of thoughts, but that was the thought that I had about you all. Um, I felt that um, if this was the journey that my life was taking, that I felt that things were going to be okay. Um, um, and that, you know, I had fulfilled my purpose. Anyways, um, sorry guys. So anyways, as I'm hiding in this bathroom, I start to look through the door hinge to see if I can see anything. And I see this um, white man in a black beanie um, bump, just like open the door of my personal office and come inside the personal office and yell again, where is she? Um, and I have never been quieter in my entire life. And he's, he's like, hey, 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 it's okay. Come out. Come out. It's a Capitol Police officer. There was no partner. Was not yelling, you know, Capitol Police, etc., etc. But then what? But then it didn't feel right. Um, because he was looking at me with a tremendous amount of anger. I talked to G, my legislative director after the fact, and he said, no, I didn't know if he was there to help us or hurt us either. And um, and G was actually like, th this man came with so much hostility that, um, that G was sizing him up and didn't know if he was gonna have to fight him. Like that is how, that is how like aggressive the situation was in that moment. And we couldn't even tell, we couldn't read if like this was a good situation or a bad situation. Um, like so many other communities in this country, like just that presence doesn't necessarily give you a clear signal if you're safe or not. And then he just looks at me and yells at me and he just goes, go down and then go to this other building. I grab my bag and we just start running over to that building. And it wasn't until we get to that building that we realized he didn't give us a specific location to go to. Um, and this is around the time when the Capitol was being stormed. We can like hear all of these rioters behind the glass of the doors, <laughs> you know, and we have no specific location to go to. We start running down this spiral staircase to the first floor. Um, and we get to the first floor and we hear the yells getting louder and louder, like, rah, 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 you know, just like, and we're completely alone, completely alone. So I realized that I had actually passed by Katie Porter's office. Um, 
And all of this stuff was happening so quickly that I saw Katie Porter like going into her office, just like holding a cup of coffee. <laughs> Because all of these developments were happening so rapidly that I think some people were at different awareness levels and at different like urgency levels than others. And so um, I knock on the door and I'm just like, bang, 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 bang. And, um, and she opens and I'm like, hey, Katie, can I, can, I, can I shelter with you right now? And Katie's like, yeah, of course, come on in. Like, yeah, come on. I'm at like a 10, right? Like I am at a full 10 fight or flight, thought I was going to die like 10 minutes ago, you know, get into bus into Katie's office. And so I start, um, I'm opening every nook. I'm opening like every cranny, looking for where I'm going to hide when they get into this office. Five, six people have lost their lives. Many more have, have been traumatized and yet, and after all of that, after they perpetuated that lie, amplified that lie, knowing that that violence needed that lie, after they told that lie, after they saw people lose their life on the steps of the Capitol, afterwards, not even, and I'm sorry, not even a, I, I didn't, I didn't know that me doing this would result or contribute to this violence. And if I had known, I wouldn't do it and I'm sorry. You know, if in the last three, four weeks we heard that, I'd be, my response would be a little different right now. But no, the response in the last three, four weeks is, we did the right thing, I would do it again. I would do it again. I don't regret it at all. And so if that is your stance for these insurrectionists and these people who incited the violence, if that's their stance, then that means they continue to be, to be a danger to their colleagues. Because what they are saying is, given those same conditions, I will choose to endanger my colleagues again for political gain. That was uh, New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, speaking about her experience on January 6th, mind you, there was uh, not just 435 members of the House, but 100 members of the Senate, all of their staffers, all of them going through, uh, no doubt, uh, similar experiences, though with someone like AOC being the target as she has been for folks on the right, I can only imagine the horror, you know, especially for her hearing, uh, hiding in the office, hearing, where is she? Where is she? And then not even knowing if the cops, the people there to protect you are on your side. She went on to say, uh, again, it was an hour long uh, conversation to her followers on Instagram that um, they're trying to tell us to move on without any accountability, without any truth telling or without confronting the extreme damage, loss of life, trauma. Uh, she says, the reason I say this and the reason I'm getting emotional at one point, she says, is because they told us to move on and that it's not a big deal, that we should forget what happened or even telling us to apologize. She says, these are the tactics of abusers. 
as she was on the verge of tears and explains uh, that she is a survivor of sexual assault, adding that she hadn't told many people that in her life, but she said when we go through trauma, trauma compounds on each other. So with that in mind, just to give you a sense of, uh, you know, if you're wondering why uh, so many in the House and the Senate are still concerned and are still talking about and still wish to see justice and accountability for what happened on January 6th, I think that um, that just gives you an idea of what one of the victims of the attack at the Capitol went through. Just to give you some color, as Republicans are busy trying to push all of this down the memory hole. For political profit. Correct. And as that is happening, well, Donald Trump endangered the lives of all members of Congress when he aimed a mob of supporters, quote, like a loaded cannon at the U.S. Capitol. That, according to House Democrats on Tuesday, in making their most detailed case yet, in fact, an 80-page trial memorandum submitted in advance of Trump's second Senate impeachment trial set to begin next Tuesday, detailing why the former president should be convicted and permanently barred from office. For his part, in a 14-page declaration by the two lawyers that Trump was able to hire at the last minute after his entire five-person legal team left him over the weekend, Trump denied the allegations, all of them, and called the trial itself unconstitutional. The two filings offer the first public glimpse of the arguments that will be presented to the Senate beginning next week in response to the violence in the Capitol just last month, which the senators uh, witnessed firsthand. The senators who will sit as jurors in this trial held in the very chamber where the insurrectionists stood on January 6th. It will pit Democratic demands for a final measure of accountability against the desire of many Republicans to, yes, Turn the page and, yes, move on with no accountability at all for the man that the Democrats charge with inciting the attempted insurrection. It is hard to imagine, frankly, that any of this at all would have occurred without Donald Trump's encouragement. And yet that is what his lawyers now appear to be arguing along with the claim that the process itself is unconstitutional and it's a violation of Trump's First Amendment rights to free speech. I wonder how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was enjoying her right to free speech as she was huddled in the darkness in the bathroom behind the door, terrified that she was about to be murdered. How'd that free speech uh, right hold up for her back then? The Democratic legal brief forcefully links Trump's baseless efforts to overturn the results of the presidential election to the deadly riot at the Capitol, as AP reports it, saying that he bears, quote, unmistakable blame for actions that threatened the underpinnings of American democracy. It argued that he must be found guilty on a charge of inciting the siege and uses evocative language to conjure the day's chaos when, quote, terrified members were trapped in the chamber and called loved ones, quote, for fear that they would not survive. 
Trump's attorneys did not dwell on the mayhem itself in their telling of what happened, whereas the Democratic managers invoked dramatic imagery captured by cell phone footage and and media reports of, quote, terrified lawmakers trapped inside the building. You just heard one of them who, quote, prayed and tried to build makeshift defenses while rioters smashed the entryway, unquote. In their brief, managers laid out a stark and disturbing compilation of what unfolded inside the Capitol that day. Members donning gas masks and calling loved ones for fear that they would not survive the assault. Capitol police officers dragging furniture to barricade the House chamber. The staff of House uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Another one that I suspect would be scared for her life along with AOC and for good reason. Staffers of hers hiding under a table with the lights out for hours as they listen to the rioters just outside their door. Uh, One member asked his chief of staff to protect his visiting daughter and son-in-law with her life, which she did by standing guard at the door, clutching a fire iron while his family hid under a table. The brief stated in reference to Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland, who is the lead impeachment manager and had just buried his own son not a week before. This is precisely the sort of constitutional offense that warrants disqualification from federal office, the Democrats argue. Their filing makes clear their plan to associate Trump's words with the resulting violence, tracing his efforts to subvert democracy to when he first said last summer, long before Election Day itself, that he would not accept the election results if he was shown to be the loser. And then all the way through the November contest and as many failed attempts thereafter to challenge the results in court in more than 60 different failed cases all across the country. When those efforts fail, the Democrats write, quote, he turned to improper and abusive means of staying in power. Specifically, they detail uh, his uh, pressure campaign that he launched against state election officials, uh, against the Justice Department and at Congress itself, basically at anybody and everybody who he thought could he could strong arm somehow into somehow agreeing with him that, oh, yeah, he won the election, which all available evidence shows that he did not. The Democrats cite the unsuccessful efforts, for example, to sway Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, as we heard in that infamous recorded phone call, haranguing and threatening Raffensperg to, quote, find 11,000 votes to flip the election. Of course, Raffensperger was smart enough or somebody in his office was smart enough to, to tape record that call. There was also similar calls reportedly made to Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia and to uh, another election official in uh, in Georgia. He also uh, tried to harangue even his own former attorney general, Bill Barr, who by and large left the DOJ early because of Trump's insistence that Barr find a way to steal the election for him, even if it meant bringing false voter fraud charges against people. Sure, put other people in jail so that I can stay in office. The Democrats write in their brief, quote, the only honorable path at that point was for President Trump to accept the results and concede his electoral defeat. Instead, he summoned a mob to Washington, exhorted them into a frenzy and aimed them like a loaded cannon down Pennsylvania Avenue. 
Hard to disagree with that loaded cannon metaphor, uh, even if one wants to argue that he may have loaded the cannon, but, well, he didn't personally fire it. Though Democrats here are arguing that, yes, he did that as well. Trump became fixated on January 6th, the managers write. They note that many of uh, Trump's supporters, including the Proud Boys, who Trump had told to, quote, stand back and stand by at a September debate, were already primed for the violence. They write, given all of that, the crowd which assembled on January 6th unsurprisingly included many who were armed and angry and dangerous and poised on a hair trigger for President Trump to confirm that they indeed had to, quote, fight to save America from an imagined conspiracy, according to the Democrats. Now, I can tell you, I think I've spoken about this before on this show, but, you know, I can tell you that... uh, You know, over the years, uh, as I've reported things at Bradblog.com and saw uh, commenters getting more and more disturbed and upset by what it was that I was reporting, that I had an awareness that, oh, my God, what I am reporting, the things that I am saying has a very real effect on the people that are reading it, that are hearing that message. And some, you know, some would get very angry and, yes, begin to threaten violence. And I had to come in and say, no, 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 that's not the way to move forward on this. And this is, a, you know, my little blog that who cares? You know, how many people read that as opposed to what the president of the United States is out there saying over and over and over again to his supporters on Twitter, on, you know, on television, And then, you know, live in front of them during this rally as they have been primed for months to believe the falsehood that the election was stolen and that their country was being stolen from them. I mean, if if I have the understanding that my words have an effect on other people and that I feel like I need to take responsibility for that, shouldn't the president of the goddamn United States have that understanding? Apparently, he did not. I would say he did. I would say he knew exactly the effect of his words on those people. Fair enough. Yeah. You know, and they were prepared, Mm -hmm. you know, having zip ties and pipe bombs and tasers. That is not normal protest accessories. (laughs) You're right. The House brief submitted on Tuesday by the Democrats is more than five times as long as the Trump filing. It's got a lot of footnotes, citations. It uh, constructs what Democrats hope will be their detailed roadmap for conviction. Trump's legal team, by contrast, was, uh, well, putting it kindly, more sparing in a filing that avoided dwelling on the drama and the violence of the day. Because, you know, can't we all move on? Trump's lawyers, David Schoen and Bruce Castor, these were the, the guys hired just two days ago or so after all of his other attorneys quit, They denied that Trump had incited the riot by disputing the election results or by exhorting his followers to, quote, fight like hell, as he told them to do in his rally speech at the White House just before directing supporters to march down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol. They said that he was permitted by the First Amendment to challenge his loss to Democrat Joe Biden as, quote, suspect, which, by the way, in and of itself, on its own, I generally agree. Yes, he does have the First Amendment right to challenge the election as suspect. 
that when coupled with everything else, the case that the Democrats are making here is that it becomes incitement at that point, especially when there is no evidence to support his repeated claims. And no, free speech does not allow incitement to violence or in this case to insurrection. And in any event, Trump's lawyers argue over and over again in their brief, if falsely, the trial itself is unconstitutional now that Trump has left the White House. That is by way of contrast with previous impeachments, albeit not for presidents, but for other federal officials under the very same clause of the Constitution, where impeachment trials have, yes, indeed been held in the U.S. Senate after the official is already out of office. There is nothing unconstitutional about this. No matter how many times they say it, and they say it over and over and over again in their 14-page response, which frankly would have been about eight pages had they not kept repeating that part over and over again. <laughs> Lawyers for Trump contested the Democratic characterization of Trump's remarks, his role in the riot, denying he incited it or that he even endangered national security. What could the Democrats possibly be referring to? When he told followers to fight like hell, they said he was talking about, quote, election security in general. That's all he was talking about. Silly people. And by the way, if you believe that one, I've got a Trump Tower to sell you in New York City, which, by the way, may have to be unloaded at some point in the near future at bargain basement prices. So that conversation is for another day, I guess. Trump, his attorneys say, was not attempting to interfere with the counting of electoral votes. He was only encouraging members of Congress to engage in the customary process of challenging the vote submissions, quote, under a process written into congressional rules, as has been done in the past, and indeed by Democrats. Trump's legal team repeatedly challenged the constitutionality of the trial uh, now that Trump has left office, but the Constitution according to AP, specifies that disqualification from future office is a punishment for an impeachment conviction, and Democrats made clear that they see that as a worthwhile objective in this case. This is not a case where elections alone are a sufficient safeguard against future abuses, they write. It is the electoral process itself that President Trump attacked and that must be protected from him and anyone else who would seek to mimic his behavior. The Democrats write that the framers of the Constitution would not have wanted to leave the country defenseless against the president's treachery in his final days, allowing to him allowing him to mis misuse power to violate his oath and ins incite insurrection against Congress and our electoral institutions simply because, well, he's leaving office. So, hey, no impeachment trial for me. I can do whatever I want. Setting that precedent, the Democrats write, would, quote, horrify the framers. If provoking an insurrectionary riot against a joint session of Congress after losing an election is not an impeachable offense, they write, it is hard to imagine what would be. If the Senate does not try President Trump and convict him, it risks declaring to all future presidents that there will be no consequences, no accountability, indeed no congressional response at all if they violate their oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution in their final weeks. There is no 
January exception to impeachment, they write, or any other provision of the Constitution. A president must answer comprehensively for his conduct in office from his first day in office through his last. That's the argument. That's the argument the Democrats are making. It is a compelling one. Of course, uh, so was, frankly, the first one that they offered the first time that Trump was impeached. And that didn't move any Republicans either, other than Mitt Romney, uh, as all of those senators sat in judgment as supposedly impartial uh, jurors. Looking uh, through specifically through. um, Do I have? Yeah, take one minute here. There was. um, a couple of points that were made in the uh, in the Trump response here uh, that I wanted to note uh, regarding the election itself. And uh, they were what they were basically doing here is they were responding to points made in the actual article of impeachment. There is one point where he says it is his opinion that the election essentially was stolen based on the uh, evidence That is known, of course, it wasn't stolen, but they make the argument that there is enough evidence that has not been seen, that has not been looked at, that the president is perfectly entitled to have that opinion. And yes, that is true. If you couple it with actually inciting violence, then we have another problem. But the fact that there is so much evidence in elections that the public never gets to see, ballots that are counted inside computers. Now, Donald Trump could have asked for recounts in a whole bunch of places where he did not ask for recounts. Then they would have been able to see the actual evidence. But he didn't do that. There are also places where touchscreen computers are used uh, to uh, print out ballots and so forth, and those can never be known whether they reflect the actual intent of the voters. But again, the Trump campaign never brought that issue up. So there's a lot of evidence uh, out there that nobody has ever seen, and therefore Donald Trump is sticking with his belief that the election was stolen. Other than the uh, evidence that has been seen, well, in that case... The evidence does not support the president. Nonetheless, this is where the two sides are as we head into the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump next week. Uh, Stay tuned. Quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Okie dokie. Ending on some good news for a change in Desi Doyen's latest Green News report. Where GM forges a path, Chevrolet, GMC, Cadillac, and Buick will follow with electric vehicles that help put everyone in an EV. General Motors to phase out internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035. 
Global temperatures warm to highest levels since dawn of human civilization. Plus, good news, court rolls back another Trump rollback. All of those rolling rollbacks and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. California finally lifted some restrictions. We are now allowed to get the mail and flee wildfires. Things are looking up. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, very, very good news. Very, very huge news concerning electric cars. Yep. But first, a huge monster storm in the Northeast. Oh, yes. As we go to air, that huge storm is pushing snowfall records in the Northeast. We won't know for a while the exact influence of man-made climate change on this specific storm. but It the- made it worse. But the bracing intensity is in line with scientists' analysis that global warming turbocharges extreme weather events. That's what I said. A warmer atmosphere holds more water vapor, which translates into more intense precipitation. And when it's cold, that means big snow. A similarly intense storm hit central California in recent days, washing out part of the iconic Pacific Coast Highway. Unfortunately, the rain is not enough in California to end California's ongoing drought. Again with the drought? Oh, yes. On to our top story. General Motors stock rose after the company announced late last week that it will end production of conventional gasoline and diesel engines, the largest U.S. automaker to do so. Wait, you mean they announced they're going to all electric cars and their stock actually went up? (laughs) Yes, it did. It didn't tank the entire company? Shocker! I'm going to complain to Fox News. They've been misleading me. GM announced the company will eliminate tailpipe emissions from all of its new cars and light trucks by 2035, including its SUVs. And GM announced that it is aiming for carbon neutrality, powering all of its global operations with 100% renewable energy no later than 2040. In a videotaped statement, CEO Mary Barra acknowledged that today, clean cars make up only a small fraction of the global auto fleet. However, we believe that is all about to change. At GM, we believe that after one of the most difficult years in recent history, this moment will prove to be an inflection point. The moment when our world's reliance on gas and diesel-powered vehicles will begin transitioning to an all-electric future. GM's shift to all-electric vehicles is a huge signal to the U.S. auto industry. European automakers like Volkswagen and BMW were already moving in a similar direction. China, the world's biggest car market, already ordered that nearly all new cars must be all-electric by 2036. Transportation accounts for about one-third of U.S. annual emissions and is a primary source of toxic air pollution. So transitioning to all-electric cars will have tremendous impacts on reducing emissions and saving billions of dollars in avoided public health costs. It's one-third of our total emissions, but it is the largest single source of emissions, correct? Yep. So this will make a huge difference. Oh, yes. And important to note that a recent MIT study confirmed previous research showing that in all cases, regardless of whether an electric vehicle is charged by renewable energy or fossil fuels, EVs are cleaner and greener than gas and diesel cars. Thank you for clearing that up. And the climate impact matters because a new study on Monday concluded that global temperatures are now at their highest levels since the dawn of human 
human civilization. The new analysis of ocean surface temperatures shows the planet is warmer now than it has been for at least 12,000 years, a period spanning the entire development of human civilization. Oh, we are totally nailing it. And they found levels of carbon dioxide are rising at the fastest rate in 66 million years. Mm. Good news for Puerto Rico. The Biden administration announced Monday it will release $1.3 billion in aid that had been appropriated to help the island rebuild after Hurricane Maria's devastation more than three years ago. But the Trump administration had withheld it. The Biden administration is also in the process of removing new restrictions on an additional $5 billion in aid for Puerto Rico, restrictions that former President Trump put in place just hours before leaving office. So he's been blocking billions of dollars from going to Puerto Rico for any particular reason? You got me. Other than he's a jerk? Finally, some very good news. A federal court has vacated the Trump administration's last-minute secret science rule that sought to prohibit certain types of public health research and would have severely curtailed the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to write new pollution rules. The judge threw out the rule, saying it was shoddily constructed and improperly issued. We cannot roll back that guy fast enough. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters, please, at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. And we got to roll the hell out of here. Oh, yes. Uh, thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doyan, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. This is the last time I will mention this. We are ending our uh, week-long celebration of our 17th anniversary at bradblog.com. So my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for an automated monthly uh, donation to our work here. We rely on you. Thank you. If you haven't done that already, hey, what's holding you up? What are you waiting until we turn 18? Bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. That's it. We'll see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Keep them doggies moving Just rope and